Uh, we are in part six of our Being Jesus series, and you're going to need your handout if you have one of those, because I'm going to direct your attention to the fill in the blank. Now, here's something you're almost never going to hear me say, but in this series, periodically you will, and that is you are not going to need your Bibles today. Now, that's super weird, and let me tell you why, because I never say that, all right? So here's kind of why. This is a series where we are blending four Gospels together, and so what I do is I use Luke as a base, and then I add in Matthew, Mark, and John's thoughts into it. And what we found was as I taught this message last night, everyone was trying to follow with me, and they got distracted from the message because they couldn't figure out where I was going. That I would add in Matthew, and they didn't know that, and they can't turn there. And so what we did is we shifted it all, the combined account, onto the screens. So that is only happening. We're trying it out. You're all guinea pigs, right? So we're going to try it out on you today so that if I start reading through a passage, we're going to have the full combined account on the two side screens so that you can follow along with me. Now, what I've always said in this church is I will start putting the messages on the screen when everyone gets a big screen and people to click it at home. All right. So if you don't have one of those at home, I want you in your Bible. I want you to know your Bible in paper so you can read it in your own devotional time. However, we are now in a place where I'm combining something that you actually don't have at home. And that is unfair to you. So we're going to try just a little bit this morning to go ahead and have them on the screen so that you'll know when I'm reading and when I'm commenting. All right. Because I always want to make a distinction between God's word and my opinion on God's word. One is inspired. One is sketchy. Do you understand what I mean? So so let, the clearer I can be about what God said versus what I said, uh, the better we're going to be. So I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank on your sheet here uh, as I kind of begin. We are in part six of this Being Jesus series and I entitled The Message, The Messianic Setup Guy. And of course... That is John the Baptist, right? So somebody referred to him as JTB, and I thought, that's, that's awesome. I'm going to hang on to that one. Uh, let me begin with a question, and it, and it sounds like I'm being a smart aleck, which normally is a good assumption, right? But, but I, I'm, I'm going to make a point that I need you to lock into your spirit, all right? So here, here's the question for you. Are you the Messiah? All right. I'm hoping the answer is no. If any of you believe yourself to be the Messiah, we have elders that would love to talk to you afterwards. As soon as we, we get your meds lined up, we're good. Just kind of roll with us. I'm sure everything will be just fine. Okay. All right. Do you have full and complete control to give eternal life to someone else? All right. If you are not the Messiah, if you do not have the ability to distribute eternal life, then you better get them to someone that does. My point in saying this is you're merely, and I'm merely, setup guy. All we do is introduce to the one that solves the problem. You are not the solution. I am not the solution. No matter how wise we may think we are, no matter how much advice we can dispense, no matter how much we think we know what's going on in the world, we are not the Messiah. 
Therefore, if we allow the people we love around us to stop with us, we have harmed them. The conversations cannot end here in us. It must always be translated over to the one that is the Savior, the one that is Lord King Jesus. Only then will they be rescued. The very concept that we say phrases like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm really... I don't know if I'm really in the mood to share my faith today. That proves you're on solid ground so that you even have the ability to think whether you want to or not. To the person drowning, that's not an option. If they're drowning, you go, I don't know if I'm going to throw a life ring today. They're going, no, 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 today's a great day, right? Uh, I'm treading water here. And the fact that you're even going, mm, means that you're standing on the land. Well, that's great for you. That's terrible for everyone dying. So as far as all of us determining now that we're safe, we can take our time. I don't think that's appropriate. So in our minds, we got to start spinning it on the idea that there are people in our lives. And I told you to share it with everyone that you love. Remember the definition of that in the Bible. You don't just love your friends and family. You love your neighbors. You love your enemies. Our mandate is to make sure that we realize people are dying around us and they need to be saved, but we can't do it. So many times we want to lead people just to like us as if somehow that secures their future. It really doesn't. Even if they do fall in love with you, even if they are impressed that you love Jesus, even if they think your life is awesome, even if they say, I want to be like you, you have to realize it's not sufficient. It's not enough. All we do is set the table for a date with Jesus. We light the candles. We get the food prepped. But we don't sit down in the other chair. It's always an introduction to Christ because he's the only one that can do anything that matters. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Some of the best evangelism is introduction. Some of the best evangelism, sharing your faith, getting the good news to other people is introduction. I, I love the, the phrase and we referred to it a, a couple of weeks ago when uh, one of the disciples came to Nathaniel and said, we found the Messiah. And he said, great, where is he from? They said, Nazareth. He's like, what? That's terrible. That's a horrible place to come from. What do you mean? And the guy goes, I don't know. Just come and see. That's the introduction. It's not the, I'm going to argue someone into the kingdom. It's not the, I have all the answers. It's not the, I've been walking this road so long that I know what you're going through. It's, I don't know, come and see. I, I don't have your answers for you. I don't, I don't know how it all works. All I know is that Jesus saved me. I don't know how he's going to work with you. I don't, I, you know, he, I'm sure he loves you. I know his nature, but I don't know the exact walk that you're going to walk. All I'm telling you is come and see. I just want to introduce you. What goes on between the two of you ultimately is between the two of you. I'm not here to manipulate you. I'm not here to shove it down your throat. I'm not here to constantly put pressure on you and to always check up on you. You're doing it, right? You're being that Christian thing, right? All I'm saying is you need to meet my Jesus because he changed everything for me. All right, so let's begin into God's word. Now, normally we begin into Luke and try to add on there, but it's necessary at this time to begin 
in the book of Mark. So let's go ahead and throw up the first scripture there. Um, Mark's gospel begins with this simple phrase. And here's what's so fascinating about it. The phrase says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Here's what's fascinating in my mind. We're in part six of the series. He's just getting started. Why? We have already talked about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and dwelt among us. In the, we've already talked about prophecies over two little baby boys, John the Baptist and Jesus. We've talked about angelic visitations. We've talked about a priest seeing an angel and a constant moving down to Egypt and moving here and running here for your lives. We've talked about shepherds and wise men and Jesus at 12 years old. And Mark goes, yeah, anyway, and just bypasses all that. He starts now. And in his mind, when he makes a statement like this, you have to begin, at least in his perspective, with John the Baptist. So here's what he says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. A couple things you need to know about that phrase. Number one is the word gospel. It means good news, but Mark is writing to Gentiles, non-Jews. He's writing to Romans. Why does he use the word gospel up front? Because it's an everyday word for them. They're very familiar with it. Why? Because in the Roman mindset, they were getting pamphlets, they were getting announcements from the emperor that said, here is the gospel of Emperor Caesar Augustus. Here's the gospel of Emperor Caesar Tiberius. And it means this is good news for the kingdom of the Roman Empire because everything is adjusting for your benefit. Mark said, oh yeah, everything is adjusting in the kingdom. As a matter of fact, everything's now different because I'm going to tell you the good news. I'm going to tell you the gospel about how everything changed because of the person of Jesus Christ the son of God. Second thing you need to know about that is that son of God is a very critical phrase. We think of son as lesser than you have to obliterate that in your mind because son in the ancient world, especially in Eastern thought means of the same nature of the same type. Okay. So famous phrase I used way back in the day was, was something I ripped off from somebody smart. I don't remember who it was. And it was this dogs beget dogs, cats beget cats. God begets God. You need to understand it means of the same type quality and essence. If you say son of God, you're automatically deity. Okay. God does not beget less than God. That is God. So Mark right off the bat is telling you that Jesus Christ is God before he ever relates his story. There's none of this. Well, I wonder if the Bible really even says that Jesus is the son of God. I mean, maybe it just teaches that he's a good teacher. No. Son of God means God. And you go, well, wait, 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 hold on, Lance. The Bible also says that to those who believe in his name, He is given the right to become children of God, sons and daughters of God. We are sons of God. You're absolutely right. What's the difference between us and Jesus? We're adopted. He's not. So when you adopt a child, it's not of your exact same essence, but it is loved and given all the same blessings and benefit, but it is not of the same nature. 
That means we get all the blessings of our heavenly father that Jesus got as the son of God, but we are not deity. We will never be deity. We need to be very clear on that. But we're loved, we're cared for, we're cherished, we have inheritance, we have the power and the authority. All that is true, but Jesus is of a different essence, a different sort. So then Luke begins the story like this. Let's go to Luke chapter 3, and it looks like this. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, your first instinct, I would guess, if you're anything like me, is shut down. Right when you read that, you go, yeah, whatever. Okay, so it's a bunch of people I don't know, don't care, let's move on. Here's why you cannot do that. What you are about to read in this phrase right here is world-altering, and we cannot miss it. So let me explain a little bit about this. Tiberius Caesar, the reason why Luke is putting all these people in here is he's trying to give you an orderly account of when everything occurred. So he's saying, this is legitimate history. This is exactly when it happened. And he's dating it. It's AD 27 to 29, depending on which calendar he was using at the time. All right. So we know that a period in history, this all started to unfold. So we're around AD 30. So he gives us indicators of various political and religious leaders. Tiberius Caesar was the second Roman empire, uh, Roman emperor of the entire empire. His adopted dad was the first. Caesar Augustus was the first emperor of the region. Now that's a big deal. He made a deal with the Senate and became full emperor. He reigned for over 40 years. That is the longest reign of any emperor ever. That's a big deal when everyone's trying to kill you. Okay? So trying to live for 40, or reign for 40 years when some people only reign for eight days, 40 years is a super long time. He married a woman, Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, married a woman, and she already had a son. That was Tiberius. Augustus adopted him and allowed him to take the throne. He reigned for 22 and a half years. That's the third longest reign of any Roman emperor. So these guys are long-term guys that are running the biggest empire that the world knew at that time. All right? So he goes through it and he says, uh, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, that's the south The reason why we care about Pontius Pilate is he's going to be the one that does the whole washing my hands of Jesus at his trial. So that's kind of important. Herod is the Tetrarch of Galilee. Remember, Herod the Great died and gave three of his sons territory. Two of them are listed right here. Herod, Antipas, and Philip. One ran the north, that's Herod Antipas. And one ran the other side of the Jordan River. That's Philip. Uh, It says that we also have um, the, we're missing a word there. Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. 
Nobody knows who he is. Nobody cares. Moving on. <laughs> That's probably why his name just got eliminated. Um, <laughs> he's so unimportant, we just cut him out. Uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, that is important for us as well. Annas is the first person that Jesus is drugged to in his trial. It says that there are two high priests. That is incorrect according to history. So what's Luke trying, trying to say? There's always one high priest at a time. Let's, let's get into a Jewish mindset and figure out how important a high priest is. You are the only one in your entire nation and people group that gets to interact with God directly. Nobody else gets to do that. One time a year, you get to go through the curtain into the area of the Ark of the Covenant and engage with God with no hindrance. That's ridiculous. Now you have to understand that to a Jew, that's the big dog. He runs culture. He runs everything. He is the influential power of the Jews. So why are there two listed? Caiaphas is Annas's son-in-law. He took over for Annas when Annas was removed from power. But we all know that it doesn't matter whether you carry the title on your door. If you're the authority, you're the authority. So even though Caiaphas had the title, his father-in-law was still the big dog. So that's why they brought Jesus to him first, then would start talking to Caiaphas because you always go to the guy who can really make decisions more so than the guy that holds the title. Make sense? And then it says the biggest phrase of all, and this is the world altering phrase right here. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Do you see it? No. Here's why it's important. The last Old Testament prophet was Malachi. He wrote approximately 400 years before this. God had gone silent for 400 years. To the Jewish people that live and breathe and eat and exist on the prophets and God talking to them, it was the worst thing you could possibly imagine. The last message God gave was this. Wow, you guys really screwed up. You know what? Now you've all been deported. Everything is messed up. I'll get you back home. And when we get back home, I'm going to get you situated. But here's the deal. You're way out of line. And if you don't learn from this, worse things are going to happen to you. Now, there's going to come a time when I will bring in my special anointed one that'll help fix all this. But until then, I'm out. Boom, he goes silent for 400 years. The time between the Testaments of the Old Testament and the New Testament were called the silent years. And you have to understand how scary that is. If you get corrected by a parent and they go silent on you, you're like, what's going to happen? Is this like, is a bomb going to drop? There's anxiety about it. Is he still mad at us? What's going on? When's this anointed one going to come? And God doesn't answer anyone like that. There's no communication with the greater nation. Now he communicated with individuals, but he did not communicate to the nation. I need you to understand how serious 400 years is. Your parents have no knowledge of God guiding your nation. Your grandparents have no idea of how God guides your nation verbally. Their parents, their parents, because their lifespan was shorter than ours. So you go back 400 years. Nobody even has memory 
if it's not written down of God talking to your nation. And then one day he spoke. Wait, God's talking to us again? What's he saying? And and who'd he talk to? I mean, you got to be kind of important if God talks to you after all this time. So did he come like, like to the big dog? Did he come to the high priest? No. Did he, did he come to like the, the great guys in the temple, the priests, any of those guys? No. He came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Well, that's weird. Who's John, the son of Zechariah? What does Zechariah do for a living? He's a priest. That's John's dad. Remember John's mom is also of a priestly line. What was John supposed to be? A priest. What is he? A prophet. Where is he? Is he in the temple? Is he doing everything like everybody else? Does he wear all the cool little clothes and always have the soft little hands? No. He's psycho man living out in the desert. He is in the wilderness. Now, immediately, anytime you say wilderness to a Jew, they immediately think desert wandering. The Israelites were in the desert for 40 years. Wait, what's he trying to say? Moses led them into the desert out of Egypt. Remember, Jesus came out of Egypt, grew up. And now he's going to lead his people. We have a new Moses coming into town. We have a new Joshua leading into the promised land. The Jews are supposed to trick, trip off that concept of desert wanderings and wilderness. And, and why else does John need to be in the wilderness? Before he was even born, there were prophecies that were said about him that he would be the messianic setup guy. That it was his job to prepare the way for the son of God to come into the world. If you have that calling on your life, you better be able to hear God. And I'll tell you this, you're not going to hear him in the busy. Quick side note on that. I believe that the critical element of all of our lives as Christians is this. Can you hear what God is saying? Because if you cannot, you're walking blind. Here's the challenge. I run a church and I can't hear the voice of God. I have designed my entire life for noise. And I always wonder, why can't I hear you, God? Well, I don't know. How do I live? Well, I go from one noise place to another noise place. I am either having the TV on or I'm reading a book where there's constant stimuli. I grew up on TV. I grew up where there's always a barrage of images. I have a hard time slowing down. If you put me by myself in a room, I still have so much internal noise spinning in my head. I can't hear a thing. I remember reading this one book on spiritual disciplines and, and he said, he goes, people keep asking me, how long should I go into solitude and silence to engage with God? He said, until you stop kicking. (laughs) Once the whole twitching stops, then... Then you can maybe hear God, but that's how addicted we are to white noise. It's everywhere around us. Our cars are noisy. The city's noisy. Everything's noisy. Even if you get away for a time, your body takes a while to slow down that motor to where you can even hear. If God speaks in a still small voice, no wonder I can't hear him. I'm built in noise. And so we're being ripped off by our busy lives. We're being ripped off by not having silence, solitude, fasting, getting away from it. Because if we can't hear God, we're going to walk into some very messed up places. So I wonder how much do you want to hear God? How much are you willing to withdraw? Jesus 
got away from everybody, even his best friends, because he had to hear the father's voice. And I believe that mandate is on us. And John said, I'll tell you where I can hear him. I got to get away from every one of you. And I got to go out in the desert and it's just me and God. It moves on and it says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching and baptizing in the wilderness of Judea. And he went into all the region around the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Powerful, powerful. In those days, John came bringing in a whole new revolutionary concept of baptizing the way that he baptizes. He baptized for repentance of sins. He had a message that said, you better turn around. You better make some changes in your life because the kingdom of God is among us. This at hand means he's right here. It's not a coming kingdom. It's a present kingdom. God has broken into our world and he is about to change everything. So you better change your heart, repent, confess, get it right with him because he has some expectations on his people. So what did John bring? What was so revolutionary? Let me give you a history of of baptism. Uh, at this church, we baptize by immersion. You know that we have baptisms uh, a couple times a year. Now we do it uh, once in the spring and once in the fall. What do we mean by baptism? Well, here's a quick history. The Jews were very familiar with getting wet. They got wet a lot. And here's why. If you look at Leviticus, the book in the Bible, Leviticus 11 through 15, it's all these regulations on ceremonial washing. They had to wash after everything. If you're unclean, you got to wash. If you got to go to temple, you got to wash. If you're going to try to purify yourself, you got to wash. If you're going to talk to God, you got to wash. It was always wash, 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 wash. So they're very familiar with water for cleansing. They're very familiar with getting wet. When I went, had a chance to go over to Israel, before you walk up the temple steps that are still there that Jesus walked up, there's not a lot of stuff that's there that that Jesus walked on. It's all been kind of torn down. The original steps of the temple mount are still there. Just to the left of those is a whole series of carved out ruins. And they were what's called mikvahs. Mikvahs is basically a bathing area. So you'd go behind a wall. So it was private. You, if you're going to go to temple, you'd remove your clothes. You'd do a full body washing, put on white clothes, and then go up into the temple to engage with God. That's how the the holy people would do it. It's a special way of getting ready for God. Jews were very familiar with washings. Baptism was a very special issue. John the Baptist did not make up baptism. As a matter of fact, if you were a non-Jew, how do you engage with God? Well, if you were just kind of somebody that respected God, loved God, but you're not a Jew, you're called a God-fearer, right? If you wanted to become a Jew and join the club, there were certain membership obligations, right? There was three things you had to do. The first one only applies to boys. It is circumcision. That enough for some of the guys would go, I'll be a God-fearer, that's fine, I'm cool, right? Circumcision, sacrifice for the atonement of sins, and baptism. 
you had to be baptized to become a Jew. And the way that they would do that was that you'd have Jewish guys standing in the water and you would walk out to him. He'd be reading stuff about what's going on, about you making this big change and dedicating your life to God as a Jew. And then he would let you know it's time to be baptized. He would never touch you. You lower yourself down under the water and you come back up. It's always self-baptism by immersion. All right. So they knew this concept. They were like, all right, so we got, we baptized Gentiles to become Jews. That's cool. John blew their mind. He comes walking in and he goes, Hey, my fellow Jews, you guys got to get baptized. They're like, I'm sorry. What'd you say? Well, you got to get baptized. No, no, we don't. That's for non-Jews. We don't do the baptism thing. You see, Abraham, our father, maybe you know him, Our father is so righteous, so faith-filled, so connected to God, he has extra on his credit to cover all of us. We have so many different traditions that talk about Abraham sitting at the gates of Hades going, hey, Jews, this isn't for you. You have an automatic ticket to heaven, right? I mean, it was, they all believed, hey, just by the fact that we were born Jewish, we got an instant connection to heaven. John goes, no, you don't. Well, that's going to rattle everybody. Because they're going, what, what do you mean? No, I mean, no, I mean, you're in danger of burning alive forever. Wait, I'm what that revolutionary concept. He said, you need to repent and you need to go get your heart, right? You need to be baptized for the repentance of sins. Another revolutionary concept. He baptized people. That's how he got the name. John, the baptizer. That was not normal. Every time he would refer to the phrase, you need to be baptized, it was a passive word, meaning that you were lowered down into the water. Now, the Christians later took that with Jesus' baptism and had their own tradition that you lower someone down because they're dead in their sins and dead people can't do stuff on their own. You lower them down, someone else helps you, and then you're raised back up alive so you can walk out of the water free clear, forgiven because of what Jesus did in your heart, right? Well, he also had them stand in the water and confess their sins out loud. Now Jews confess sins. I don't know to what degree you confess them out loud in a public setting. That's awkward, right? You have to stand there and go stole that dude's car. (laughs) Totally into that girl right there, (laughs) right? Everyone's a little uncomfortable. Okay. So they would then get baptized by John. This is why now we need to be very careful on what John's baptism meant. John's baptism was not about salvation. That is something critical. You need to understand. We're not there yet. The Messiah brings salvation. John's baptism is only prep. Confess your sins, get your heart ready so that the Messiah will engage with you and free you from what is going on with you. All right? So John's baptism is only prep. That's why in the book of Acts, you'll read where they'll come up on people and they'll go, hey, have you received the Holy Spirit's baptism? And they're like, well, I know John's baptism. I got that part. I'm prepped and ready. And they go, no, no, no. The real legit thing is here. Let's do that. And they go, oh, okay. And then they got baptized again. Why did they do it twice? One was a prep. John's is only a prep because the Messiah hasn't been revealed yet. All right. So last couple things about baptism. Eventually, um, baptism began to change a little bit throughout the history. When I was over in, uh, Turkey 
I went to a place called Ephesus. So if you think of the book of Ephesians and there was, it became a very kind of Christianized place at one point in history. And they had little baptismals cut into the stone, two little steps to go down, two little steps to go out. And then a kind of a little bowl in the middle. But here was the thing that was so intriguing. There's no way. First of all, if I walk in that water, it'll come up to about here to me. All right now to everyone else it comes up to here, but to here, <laughs> to here to me, right? Uh, especially one of my elders that happens to be much shorter than I am. So, uh, his name starts with Mark anyway. Um, so when, when I go there, I was like, there's no way I could even dip down into that. And there's no space because you have stone around you to lean back. I would smash my head on the rock. So I was like, well, that's a weird kind of baptism. You got to remember that not everybody had a large amounts of standing water where they could go. So what they began to do is the pouring method. You stand in the water and they scoop like a ladle or a bucket and they'd pour it over your head to douse you and say, I baptize in the name of the father, one bucket, the son, two buckets, the Holy Spirit, three buckets. So it became a standing pouring thing. Well, later on, they got into this idea of going, wait a second. The Bible says that God will sprinkle our hearts and make us new. So the amount of water doesn't matter. That's where sprinkling came from. It was the idea of saying just like the, when we would flick blood in the Old Testament on people to make them pure, in the same way, we just need the sprinkling of water symbolically on us and we are baptized. That's where that tradition came from. It was not till much later that baby baptism started up. Now, we at Bridgeway do not believe in baby baptism because we think it defeats the very purpose of baptism because someone else is doing it for you. Baptism is supposed to be your engagement with God, all right? Bridgeway views a few significant things happening with baptism. Let me be very clear with you. The first one is something supernatural and spiritual happens there but I don't know what it is and I don't know how to describe it to you. It's kind of like communion, right? We take communion remembering Christ, but in some way, as we are doing something God asked us to do and commanded us to do, it's almost like that obedience is this deeper connection with God. I don't know what it is. I don't know. It's not like, oh, you get saved through it or, oh, you get superpowers or it's nothing like that, but it's some type of deep connection with God. I think that happens in baptism. I've watched people come out of that water and they're like, boom, I just have a whole new mindset. All right. That's awesome. Second thing that it does is it is a, and this is the one we celebrate here the most. It's a public profession of what God already did in your heart. Even the ancient historian wrote about John made it very clear. John never taught that you got saved by getting in the water. You always were saved first, then you got in the water. There's no magic in the water to give you salvation. So we publicly profess, we tell everybody out loud, we confess with our mouth and we do it with our actions. I'm all into God. The other thing that it does is it lets everyone outside visibly know that you're part of the church, not this part of the church, the big C church, the bigger, greater church. All right. Why is that important? Well, in America, it's not that big of a deal, but if you're in a country that is not Christian and they see you visibly marked out as a member of the Christian community, you are now tagged for death. That's kind of a hardcore stance. Back then they had a lot of authorities watching 
and they would put you in prison if they knew you were one of them. So a public profession standing up for Jesus and saying, I'm all in, was almost signing your death warrant. The last thing is that when we get baptized, it is a word picture that makes things more real. You are being lowered down and you're going through an exercise, a visible illustration of what really changed. Let me give you an example on what that's like. I loved my wife and was dedicated to my wife the day before my wedding. But when I verbally went through a process called a ceremony where we exchange rings, I didn't, wasn't more dedicated to her, but it became more real in the same way. The normal way to get baptized is I just got saved. I'm fired up for Jesus. I'm going to go get baptized as part of the whole process. That's the best way to do it. We don't do that around here for practical reasons. We can't do that. But that's the idea is that I want to make this so real to me so I can own it. So I can have this ceremony connected to it so I can believe it. We lower down as if we're dead. We rise up cleaned off and we have that sense of forgiveness that comes into our hearts. Everybody clear on that? All right, fantastic. Let's move on. Now, John, it says, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. For this is he of who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. What does that mean? It means he's weird. <laughs> he's weird on purpose and he's weird for a variety of reasons. That outfit is very specific. It's a uniform. Who wore that exact outfit? Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament. How do we know that? Second Kings, there's a story. And it's one of my favorite stories. I'll give you an idea on what Elijah was like. <laughs> there was a bad king of Israel named Ahaziah. And he was walking in his house and fell through the lattice, through the roof in his house, and falls down and gets super hurt. So he's like, oh, dying, can't breathe, right? So he's dying and he says, somebody go consult the pagan god Baal and find out if I'm going to live or not. Well, Elijah heard about this. He said, wait, the king of Israel is going to a pagan god? Oh, no, that's not going to happen. So he hijacks the process and goes, go tell your king, yeah, dude, you're going to die. Now that's Elijah. Elijah's not afraid most of the time of anybody. He's always causing problems. He's Mr. Potster. He's the bring down fire from heaven guy, right? He's the guy that will go head to head with anybody and call out everybody on their garbage. So he tells you go tell the king he's going to die. Well, how do you think the king responded to that? Not favorably. So he sends 50 soldiers to arrest Elijah. Is that a wise choice? Probably not. They come up and Elijah's sitting on a little hill and they come up and they said, Elijah, the Tishbite, you are under arrest. You will come with us now. We're going to put you in jail. We'll probably kill you. And Elijah goes, if I'm a man of God, you'll all burn in fire. Fire comes out of the sky. Wham! Kills everybody. He's like, sucker. <laughs> the king sends another group. They come up, another 50 soldiers. Elijah, we really are here on behalf of the king, and we're going to arrest you and put you in jail. He said, if I'm a man of God, bye-bye. Wham! They all die. Elijah's just killing groups of 50 people at a time. Third group gets sent. This king doesn't learn very fast. 
Third group comes up, and I kid you not, they start the conversation like this. Dude, we're just doing our job, man. We, we didn't. I have zero interest. Dude, I got minimum wage coming to me. So I don't need to die today just because I'm bringing you a message. You need to mellow out because this has nothing to do with me. And I just like, hmm, that's a great point. <laughs> All right, so I will come with you. <laughs> and you're like, so that's right before Elijah is taken up in a chariot of fire. Elijah never died. Now that plus a prophecy that said before the Messiah shows up, Elijah will come back. All the Jews were waiting for Elijah to usher in the Messiah. And here comes a dude that dressed in the exact outfit. Because when the king heard that he was going to die, that some man said he was going to die, he asked the question, what did he look like? And they said he wore a camel's hair and a belt around his waist. And he's like, that's Elijah. John knew that, put on the uniform and began to live like that. He lived in the wilderness and he ate poor people food. You would broil or roast big old crickets. That's what you ate for protein. You would eat honey for your sweets. So he's out in the desert living simplistic, revolutionary garb, eating like a poor person. And he's a priest. What was his point? His point was all you softies, all you fat, gluttonous, lazy, religious, right? Because he's looking at their religion, which was all excess. And he goes, you don't even hear God. You don't even know what you're doing. I'm the only one paying attention right here. So I will tell you, I am the last Old Testament prophet. Last time Malachi spoke, I'm right here. Let's go. You need to repent or you're going to burn forever. That's going to cause a stir. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Elijah's hardcore. And so is John the Baptist. It says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, behold, this is Isaiah 40, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Regardless of what those prophecies were originally, let me tell you what they mean. Back in the day, roads were terrible. That's it's not hard to figure out, right? They didn't have the whole paved road thing. Rome had just started the concept of paved roads. So whenever the king would go into town, somebody had to prepare the road for him because there's nothing less cool than riding up as the king and you're jostling in your chariot and you, you want to walk in like smooth, right? You want to have everything look good and you want to look powerful. You don't want to be hanging on for dear life as you're going through potholes. So wherever the king went, there was a road preparer guy and he would go out and fill the potholes and get everything prepped so that he could roll in smooth and have everything ready for him. John said, I'm that guy. I'm setup guy. I'm road preparer guy. That's all I do for the Messiah. And all the country of Judea, it says, and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in Bethany across the Jordan. That is a city we no longer know where it was. It's not the Bethany where Jesus' friends hung out. It's a different one. In the river, confessing their sins. John was really popular. When you got fiery guy where God is now speaking again, you have an Old Testament prophet show up. And you have to know John the Baptist is Old Testament. You go, but he's in the New Testament. No, 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 no. 
we got to think after Pentecost, before Pentecost, before Pentecost is Old Testament, after Pentecost is New Testament. Here's why that's important. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet because it's a connection to the Old Testament. It was fulfilling the prep, then the Messiah changed everything. All right? And the reason why that is critical is that Jesus is going to comment later on what John the Baptist was like. And he says this phrase, among those born of women, meaning among all the dudes I know in the entire world, none is greater than John the Baptist. In the old school way of thinking, in the Old Testament, nobody's better than John. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And you go, what does that mean? It means if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are light years further than wherever John could ever get. Because John was old covenant. We are new covenant. That was his point. All right, we move on. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, those are the religious leaders of the time, in the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, he said to them, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now that's supposed, that's called picking a fight. He just says to the religious leaders, y'all a bunch of snakes. Oh, are you all slithering away from the fire? Who warned you? You're not out here to repent. You're not out here to change. You're out here to check up on me. You're the reason why we're in this mess. So you are the problem, my friend. And yes, I'm calling you out publicly. Well, people don't like that. I found out. He said, by the way, next phrase, do not pres- begin to presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able to make from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. What does he mean? What, you think you're safe because you're a Jew? God can make Jews out of rocks. It's not a big deal. It's your heart, buddy. And even right now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Man, we are coming to the end of the season. And just like a guy goes and prunes and gets rid of all the garbage, God's going to get rid of you. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. That was where you would crush the grain, the wheat kind of stuff. And all the good stuff was heavy and all the husks and uh, junk was all light. So you take a big pitchfork and throw it up into the wind and it would blow away the light stuff and all the grain would fall to the ground. He said, God's going to sift us all. And you know what? All the useless junk of all the wickedness and all the people that are filled with wickedness, God's just going to burn you up. Well, this is rattling people's cages. So look at the next phrase. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Man, if we're all going to die, what do we do about this? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. But then tax collectors, people the Jews despised, they came to be baptized. He said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers who the Jews despised asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. What's his point? Stop playing games. Stop just thinking, oh, I can just go to church and I'm all good. Change. If your heart is wicked, fix it. Do different stuff. You are not allowed to go and just be all worshipful and then be a psycho racist in your heart. 
You are not allowed to just play this Christian game and tell everybody that you go to a million Bible studies when the whole time you are murdering people in your hatred. You are not allowed to do that. You change your inner core. This is not a game. This is from the inside out. So you know what? I'm not telling you to change your job. You're a tax collector. You're a soldier. I don't care what other people think about you. What I'm telling you is this. Are you righteous or are you not? If you're righteous, be righteous where you're at. God doesn't need more people coming into full-time ministry. He needs more salt and light out in the world. So I don't need you getting out from what you're doing. I need you to be Jesus's man and woman right where you sit. That's awesome. Amen. As the people were in expectation, they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. I mean, this guy's a fiery speaker. It's awesome. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. They got to check up on him. What if this guy's legit? And they asked him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. Right there, you got to pause. If you want to talk about opportunity... Man, everybody loved this guy. He was the biggest superstar in their whole region. He could have had the biggest, best ministry. He could have had everybody do anything he wanted at the drop of a hat. And he ruined it all with one phrase. Dude, are you like the man? Me? Are you kidding me? Uh, no. No, I'm not the dude. Well, they asked him, what what then? Are you Elijah? He said, what, like come back from the dead? No, no, I'm not. Are you like the prophet that was, that was prophesied about? Uh, he answered no. So they said, well, who are you? We got to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'll tell you who I am. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. He said, I'm the setup guy. All I do is prep. That's all I do. So they asked him, why then are you baptizing? If you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah back from the dead, if you're not the spoken of prophet that was to come. And John answered them all and preached saying, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is mightier than I, oh, he's coming among you. He's already here stands one. You don't even know, even though he comes after me. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Man, whoa, what? He said, me? Are you kidding me? Me? Dude, I can't even pick up the guy's sandals. Do not look at me. Do not think I'm any big deal. Do not think that I'm going to change your life. I will change nothing in you. I will merely tell you to get your heart ready because the Messiah is coming. And he stands even among you. I even know who he is. You don't even know it. He's sitting there right with you. But wow, when he comes on the scene, let me just tell you this. And this is the the platform. In that day, sandals were nasty. You walked around where on the same roads that were wet and muddy and dirty, but all the animals pooped on. So you had sketchiness all over you in your feet. And so, I'm not a big foot guy in the first place, but anyway. <laughs> so if we ever do like a foot washing in here, I'll have all the elders do it and I'll be like sitting on the ground now. Anyway. <laughs> so literally, only the lowest slave in the house would ever address the foot washing issue 
That's why it was a big deal when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And even a rabbi and their disciples, the disciples do everything for the rabbi. They were excused from the sandal thing because it was so nasty. John goes, even if I wanted, I have no problem. I'll pick up, I'll carry that guy's sandals. I'll take his sandals. I can't even do that. I'm not even worthy to even touch his slime. So no, am I anything? No, I'm nothing. But he's everything. I tell you to get ready, but he fixes you. I baptize you with this idea of, God, I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you. And he comes in with the Holy Spirit, indwelling power, coming alive for the first time, burning out, unpurifying with fire all the way through our bodies, ridding out the garbage, making us look like the image of the Son of God. He will shape you. He will heal you. He will deliver you. He will excite you and capture you and and captivate you. He will grab your imagination. He will grab your heart. He will transform your life. Me? I'm just set up guy. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, of course, he had to rebuke the king, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. We'll get to that story. It actually repeats it again later on in scripture. And I'll tell you the huge creepy story that that was and why John got irritated. But ultimately, it cost him his life. Scholars estimate that John started his ministry around 30, like Jesus, but he was only in public for one year. He was then put in jail and in jail for 18 months to two years. And then he was beheaded. His head was cut off. All that power and ferocity, all that strength, A historian wrote about him. No wonder Herod put him in jail because that guy could lead a revolution at any moment. Everyone would do anything he said. And God kills him away. Why? Because when you're a setup guy, you're no longer needed when the legit man rolls into town. I think that we need a little bit more perspective on who we are and what our job is. Our job is to introduce people to the one that can heal. Our job is to introduce them to the one that can save. It's not us. And when our job is done, we're supposed to be here in the world and just kill it for God's sake. Prep everything we can, minister, love on, care for, pray for, heal, do all the incredible things. But we're just set up guys. We're set up girls. That's just how it works. And when we're done, God calls us home and said, hey, kid. Nicely done. I loved it. I mean, you were just going to town. It was awesome. You did a couple stupid things, but whatever. (laughs) You know what? By the power of my Holy Spirit, did you not have fun? Did you not get excited? I mean, we were living on the edge the whole time. I'll tell you what. You've strained a lot. Now it's time to rest. So I need you to come back with me so I can spoil you a bit. So let's step out of that world, stop the frustration, and you come and do what you were built to do. Come hang out with me. And that's what we call death. Do you own your mission? Do you get what your point is? Do you understand your value in this world? You and I are prep. And we make way for the Lord. 
But when he comes into town, wow. The kingdom of God is here. It is our job merely to talk about it, to express it, to fight with it, to change the world. It's our job to make sure that Jesus has everything he needs so that he can do everything that matters. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a wonderful morning. Thank you, God, for an amazing time of worship, a wonderful time of prayer, and Lord, a walk through your word. I just pray, God, that you would empower and light on fire everyone that is here, everyone that can hear my voice. That, Lord Jesus, that you would anoint us, that you would uh, quicken us, that you would guide us. Lord, show us what we must do to hear your voice, how we must be quiet, how we must fast, how we must clear our minds. Because, God, if we are in line with you and we are according to your purpose, there is nothing that can shut us down. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.